Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have given to us this one day in seven to rest our bodies and to fill our souls, to fill our spirits with understanding of and love for you, resulting in emanating from us as worship to you, Father. We pray that our worship would be in spirit and in truth this day. And Father, we ask as we take up this topic again this morning, uh, that you would cause each one of us to resolve to do just as we have sung, to watch as if on that alone hung the issue of the day, to work hard to do those things that you command us to do for our good, and to pray that help may be sent down. Father, to pray for that help of the Holy Spirit, that enabling of the Spirit to empower our actions and our thoughts to honor you and to turn away from our old man. Father, we pray that you would be honored today here in our Sunday school and all through the day as we seek to worship you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So last week, well, we continued our lessons in chapter 3 of the book we're covering in Sunday school now, Principles of Conduct, chapter 3 being that of uh, marriage and procreation. And we finished up discussing uh, the fact that marriage is not commanded nor forbidden, uh, and singleness is not uh, set up as better or worse than marriage in the biblical ethic. Then we began to discuss the biblical ethic around pursuit of what we've defined as the sex impulse. And the foundational ethic governing that pursuit is, is that it's to happen between a husband and a wife and not in any other context. And really the main point we had uh, we had made in, in, is that the Bible sees this impulse, or what we might call the sex drive, as a desire and not as an appetite, Now, as we define those things. And that is something we are driven to fulfill, but not something that we must fulfill at the peril of our well-being or our lives. By using those words, I was trying to draw the line between understanding that the sex drive is something that can be managed or controlled versus an appetite that must be satisfied, like the appetite we have for food or water or air. Now, the culture we, we live in has defined the sex drive as an appetite that must be satisfied, or we risk our mental and or physical well-being. And with that as a foundation, it has concluded that sex can and should happen in many contexts other than marriage. That is, this is, this is what I pointed out last week, that is the inevitable result of humanism, which is, in very simple terms, the desire to satisfy self, rather than Christianity or deism, which is, the desire to satisfy God as a foundation. We then went on to discuss the first 
two of specific, or the first of two specific areas of behavior where the differences, the difference in definitions can and does impact us as Christians. And this fir- the first area we covered last week was that of masturbation. It's a self-focused and individual pursuit of the satisfaction of the sex impulse. As such, that is as self-focused and individual, it misses the main purposes of sex for which God intended it, which involve a husband and a wife, two people. So today, we're going to discuss another area where Christians have, and I fear uh, do, uh, fall too often into sin, and that's the area of pornography. So the mountain of statistics of how many men and women in our culture, in our world culture, but I'll I'll speak primarily of the U.S. culture here, have been exposed to and are regularly using pornography is stunning. I dug into this just a little bit in preparation for this lesson, which I hadn't really done, didn't need to do before, and it is stunning. One research article I found contained this statement in the summary. I'm just going to read the statement. A majority of the U.S. population, so more than 50% of the U.S. population, has intentionally viewed pornography before. This is the part that stunned me. With an even larger majority, so more than whatever that other number was, I don't know, it's greater than 50%, of U.S. young adults, without defining what young adult means. So even a larger majority of young adults in the U.S. view pornography regularly. So it's a practice. It's part of their lives. So that's the culture at large. Also, pornography exists. This is from the same article. It's a kind of a, it was kind of a uh, summary article about this sort of research. Pornography exists on 12% of all websites. Now, I didn't try to figure out how many websites there are, but 12% is one in eight. So one out of every eight websites is at least has pornography available on if it's not dedicated to porn. And it's viewed by approximately 69% of American men, so about two-thirds of American men, and about 40% of American women in a given year. And the statistics in the church, according to research and surveys, is not significantly different than this. One article I found, which again is a summary of the research, Uh, displayed, or it gave some results from a Barna Group survey, uh, a Christian surveying group. It reported that 68%, so 1% less, by the way, that's not statistically significant. It's about the same as 69%. It's all in one, it's two-thirds. Two-thirds of evangelical men, men who identified as evangelical Christians, and one-third of evangelical women view porn on a regular basis. 
quote unquote, regular basis. Not occasionally, not they saw it out once and were, were grossed out by it and turned away never to return, but they view it on a regular basis. One in three women, two in three men, evangelicals. Now these statistics are ubiquitous. They're everywhere you look if you go to look for them. And they're, they're reported and subdivided and nuanced in various ways, but the conclusion of them is undeniable. It can't be turned away from. This is a very real, this being the use, quote unquote, use of pornography, very real and significant problem in the church today. Now, I, say, I use the term the church today because that feels a little better, doesn't it? I can tell you it's a very real problem in our church. It's not the church at large. It's our church. Now, do I have statistics that say two-thirds of men in this church are regularly viewing pornography? No, I don't. Or one-third of the women in this church are regularly viewing pornography? No, I don't have those statistics. But I know enough about you all to know it's a problem. That's why we need to talk about it today. That's why we can't turn away from it. We can't say it's a problem out there and we don't have to deal with it. Because it's a problem right here. It's really a problem right here in our own hearts each one of us individually. And we need, to take, we need to take that fact to heart. And we need to watch and pray. We'll be watching ourselves and praying for the Lord to give us help to overcome this. One encouragement I want to give you from all these statistics, and it's kind of a left-handed encouragement, but it is an encouragement nevertheless because it's thwarting a a strategy the devil often uses to make us feel hopeless. If you could classify yourself as regularly viewing pornography, you are not alone. Even in this church, you're not alone. Don't think that it's isolated just to you and you've got to keep it a secret because we know that more than one of us is doing this. We know. So don't think you're alone. Don't isolate yourself. Now, I could go on and on about how viewing pornography rewires our brains. It really, it literally does rewire. It, it sets up new pathways in our brains that makes the resistance of the temptation to continue seem hopeless to us. Because when we establish these pathways in our brain that result in us seeking, I'll call it a pleasure rush, I might just call it a dopamine rush, because that's the, the chemical most prevalently involved in the brain, but if we, if we, when we do that, we establish a pathway in our brain and it never 
goes away. So all of us who have exposed ourselves to this blight have a pathway in our brain that, that will go downhill to that sin if we don't consciously resist it. And it's, it's not gone away. Now, it may be more grown over than others if the Lord has blessed us, but it's there. Another thing I want to say is this can make us feel like we're victimized by it. We're just a pawn being maneuvered, being manipulated by this horrible system that puts all these images out there for us. And I want to say very, very clearly, we are not victims of this. We make conscious choices to do what we do. I, I had a, a debate almost every year, or every quarter maybe, with my Sunday school class about the statement, we only do what we want to do. Now that's absolutely a true statement. Now, why we want to do it may be due to all sorts of things, some of them outside of our control, but we only do what we want to do. We're not victims. We make choices, and we choose to sin in this way when we do. So, so don't, don't allow yourself in your thinking to subconsciously give yourself a pass because you're victimized by the system that's putting these things in front of you. Nothing's putting these things in front of you. You're putting these things in front of you. You're making the choices. The second thing I want to point out under this about the, the pathways in our brain that get formed, I saw a slogan on a commercial on TV recently, and it was a, I think it was a play on the old song, These Boots Were Made for Walking. I didn't think it was a very good play, but it, it did say, the slogan was, walking makes pathways. I don't remember what, what product this was a slogan for, and it doesn't matter. What matters is the truth of that slogan. When we choose a pathway to walk, when we choose where we're going to walk, we make a pathway. And if we choose it over and over and over again, we, we harden down that pathway. We, we get the weeds out of the way. We, we make it as broad as we can make it to walk that pathway. Now, if that's a good habit, that's great. And if it's a bad habit, that's not great. Walking, choices make pathways. A principle of habit formation is that, this is just one principle, but it's that you make a good habit easier for yourself and you make a bad habit harder. Environmentally, in, in, you manage your environment, what's around you, so that you make a good habit easier and a bad habit harder. For instance, if you're in the habit of drinking 10 cups of coffee a day and you want to break that habit, you want to cut it down to one or two, you could actually go as far as to remove the coffee from your house or your apartment or wherever it is you live and make it so you have to go out and buy coffee if you want to feed that habit. Make it harder for yourself. Instead of you can just reach up sleepily and grab a cup of coffee and start to swig on it. Now, that's a, maybe a humorous example. I don't know. But it, it illustrates the point. 
We have to make bad habits harder. Now, the environment that many of us are in when it comes to this class of sin, pornography, is a, is a virtual environment, isn't it? It's on our computers. It's on our phones. We still make choices with those devices. We still click the keys and punch the mouse. But it's, it's a hard environment to control. But it's not impossible. And I'm not going to get into the details of how to control those environments. I'm going to say... You can take an app off your phone to make it harder to get where you want to go. Then you have to make a choice and a choice and a choice to get where you want to go instead of just, oh, just click that open and get started. Right? You can make the pathway harder. And you should. You need to realize that you're managing your environment to resist a sinful habit. And that's a good thing. That applies to whole classes of sinful habits, not just this one. And I could, I could go off on quite a long tangent about habit formation and the way we can use it to our advantage in walking the Christian life, but I won't. I'm just going to say, this is exactly illustrated in Proverbs 7, and I'll just, I'll just quote verse 8. This foolish youth, he was foolish because... He was, verse 8, passing along the street near her corner. What was he doing there? He could have been anywhere else, and he was passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house. I'm just going to walk by. I won't, I won't go in. I won't be tempted. I'm tempted already because I'm taking the path near her house. I'm walking by her house. Manage your environment so that you can more easily resist these bad habits. It's not just a mental exercise. It's a physical exercise in your world to resist sin. We could also talk about the neurology of addiction and how it leads us to need bigger and bigger hits of our drug of choice in this case, the drug is pornography. Of our drug of choice to get that feeling of euphoria that we're after. And that's a normal human behavior to be after that feeling of, hum- of euphoria. In fact, our brains, our bodies make chemicals that give us that feeling of euphoria. And that, that can be a very good thing. When you view a beautiful sunset, or you smell a rose, if, that's, if you really like the smell of roses, you get some of that dopamine in your brain that gives you that feeling of euphoria, and it's a wonderful thing. And you maybe you praise God for that wonderful gift. But the problem is with this sin, we seek this feeling of euphoria, and it's it's sinful to seek it, not helpful to seek it. In my days as an adolescent, that was a long time. I was four. I'll, I'll call adolescent 15. So that was 46 years ago. In my days as an adolescent, getting a magazine was the easiest way to get a hit of pornography. 
Now, magazines were inherently, by definition, they were limited in volume and frequency. They usually came out monthly, and they had a finite number of pages. They weren't New York City phone books. They also came with more risk of discovery, discovery of your sin, because you had to physically be someplace to get this magazine. Or if you were really addicted, you might, you might have a subscription to a magazine, and, but then the mailman knows it, and anyone else who sees your mail. Now today, remembering that we're not victims, we are not victims, but today it's much more dangerous. Right? Today, those same images are available online, on your phone, on your computer, whatever device you have that'll let you get on the web. Right? And they're online in a seemingly endless stream. And that's not to speak of the ever-increasing shock value of what can be found when you look. These hits that we need for our feeling of euphoria, these hits are available to us now privately, easily, instantly, and in this ever-increasing stream so overdoses of our drug, overdoses of pornography, are more common. And what do overdoses cause? They really, literally, they damage our psyches. They damage our brains. And they make it harder for us, all of us, to enter into a real-life encounter with the opposite sex. So even having a conversation might be more difficult. They make it hard to enter into a real life encounter with our husband or our wife, if we're married. And this leads to all manner of problems and complaints among couples. But we can't spend more time there this morning. I hope I've established the gravity of the problem. Rather, I'm just going to ask a few simple rhetorical questions. What is the purpose of viewing pornography? I mean, there are a lot of purposes, I suppose. But at, the, at its root, what is the purpose of it? And I will say like I did for masturbation. It's really, it's for a false satisfaction of the sex impulse, quote unquote sex impulse, because it's not the true sex impulse. But you get what I mean. It's a false satisfaction. Is it satisfaction of that impulse outside the covenant of marriage? Obviously, yes, it is because it's not, it's not satisfying your sex impulse with a real-life encounter with your husband or your wife. So it's got to be outside that context, period. 
Are we to put off the old man and put on the new to resist this impulse? Yeah, that's what the, that's what the scriptures teach. Yeah. So why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Because I've heard that a number of times. So hard. I'm going to submit to you that it's partly because we are immersed in worldly thinking and not in the spirit. We, all of us, are immersed, not against our wills, we immerse ourselves in worldly thinking. We go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week, are we immersed in worldly thinking or are we immersed in the thinking of the Spirit of God who dwells in us? Because the world, our culture is a very sexualized culture. You cannot drive on the freeway without being confronted with images that may provoke you because you have pathways in your brain that it wants to just trickle right down. Sex has been uh, preached in our culture as a normal appetite. And it's been told, we've been told by our culture, there is no shame in porn. Don't be ashamed of that. That's normal. All of these things have been pounded into us. The question is, are we resisting that pounding in by fixing our minds somewhere else, or are we just swallowing it? Just taking it on. Even if we don't agree with it outwardly, are we just taking it on? I'm not saying that the desire for satisfaction of the sex impulse doesn't burn very hot in some of us. I'm not saying that. Paul acknowledged that in 1 Corinthians 7. He just said it. And we'll see that a little bit later. I'm saying God has made provision for us. That's what he teaches. God has made provision for us for the satisfaction of that impulse, which is a desire not an an appetite. He's made provision for us in marriage. He created marriage partly for this reason. Marriage is much more than a means of avoiding sexual temptation. But it is at least God's created means of glorifying him in our pursuit of this good gift, this good gift that he's given to us. And that provision is for our good, for our happiness. I'm also saying that the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us if we are a born-again believer. And he gives to us the fruit of the Spirit the fruit of his presence with us, part of which is self-control. But we must seek to fix our thinking on that which is good and noble, to push the thinking of our culture about the normalization of sexuality, the normalization of looking at porn, 
push that thinking out of our minds. And we must make that effort, that effort to put the right in front of our minds and the wrong out of our minds, we must make it continuously. It's an ongoing job of the Christian in our world to continuously think upon the things of God instead of the things of this culture. That it, it, it doesn't stop because our temptation doesn't stop. Those old paths that we formed are there. They are there waiting to be trodden again. And if we lazily allow ourselves to think upon whatever the culture is teaching us, we will go right down those paths. I promise you. We can neglect those paths, as I said. We can allow them to overgrow with thorns and thistles, with weeds, become narrower, harder to walk, but they're still there. We can, we can allow that to happen while we seek to establish and broaden better pathways in our thinking. And we can do that. We can choose to do that. We do what we want to do. This is a want to do as well. It's a want to do that the Holy Spirit has planted in our hearts. Remember that seeking purity is a positive activity. So we can't hope to achieve it by telling ourselves what we can't do. Right? You cannot achieve purity by saying to yourself, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pick on that, that uh, website. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look at porn. I'm not going to. I'm going to be pure. You can't, that, it, of course you should tell yourself that, but it can't end there. We've got to fill our minds. We've got to develop the habit, the pathway in our thinking of pursuing or meditating on or filling our minds with things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report. Just like Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 8. And if we'll do that, that way of thinking can and will, because the Holy Spirit is working in us, it will become a way of life, a habit of thinking, a pathway that you walk mentally instead of walking your old pathways. And it can't be, this way of thinking can't be a one-time event. You can't go home this afternoon and say, all right, I'm going to think this way. And you know what? You'll be safe from these sins while you're thinking that way. And then you say, well, all right, I thought that way, now I need to move on, get on with the rest of my life, dive into the culture and not resist it. It's not going to do any good. Okay? So I really want to wrap this subject up by saying that we've got to fight it by this phrase that I've been thinking on this week, which isn't my phrase at all, but implanting in our minds the expulsive nature of a new affection. We've got to have an affection for these things that are true and noble and lovely rather than the affection for the sin. If we'll have that new affection, it will expel the desire for our sin. But it's a continuous 
process. It's a continuous effort through your life. Okay. So I'm ready to move on. Unless someone raises their hand and says, we've got to talk about this. All right. All right. So, what about the satisfaction of the sex impulse within marriage? This is a much more pleasant topic to talk about. I've been waiting to get to it. It's 10.35. We're going to go another lesson. I don't know exactly when it's going to be. Um, we'll have to talk about that, but it's going to be soon. So there's no more definitive place to go to form our understanding of the biblical ethic than 1 Corinthians 7. The church at Corinth had asked Paul a series of questions which, uh, to which Paul is responding in the first part of, first, of the letter of the first, Corinth, the first letter to the Corinthian church. And in God's providence, I think very kind providence, we don't have the questions they asked. And I think that's really good because if we had them, we'd be tempted to say, and we'd be too, fall, too easily fall into the temptation to say, well, his answer doesn't really apply to my case. I'm, a little, I'm special here. The answers do apply to our case. They're in God's word, and they're useful. 1 Timothy 3.16 so they most definitely do apply to our case. So we've already discussed verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know if you remember that or not because it was so long ago. That was, that was the verse that we applied to the Bible's teaching on marriage and singleness. Where each, each one is gifted differently. But in verses 2 to 5 of 1 Corinthians 7, we see a very clear ethic laid down concerning the practice of of sexual relations within marriage. And isn't it interesting that Paul, or Paul is really just the, uh, the intermediary, God is willing to talk frankly about this issue that many of us, quite honestly, are not willing to talk frankly about. And that's a problem. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for, with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now here again, in talk, there is so much we could say about this, these four verses I've just read to you and I can't say it all and Murray didn't say it all but he said a lot more than I'm going to. So I want to make, I want us to see a really important point in these verses. So I'm going to focus on that and not go into all the depth that the chapter does. And it's profitable to go and read the chapter and get the depth here. But 
the point, the main point I want us to see is that within marriage, the satisfaction of the sex impulse is an opportunity for service, not for demand. I'm going to open that up a little bit. So, after laying down in verse 2 the fact of one of the foundations of marriage, that is righteous satisfaction of the desire for sex, Paul then regulates that desire in verses 3 through 5. He says in verse 3 that husbands and wives are to render or give to one another the affection due them. And if there's any question about what affection he's talking about, he says in verse 4 that the husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's body belongs to the husband. And then in verse 5, he lays out that any disruption in the regular pattern of giving affection to one another should be by mutual agreement for prayer and fasting. And it should not be sustained so that Satan does not tempt you. Now this regular pattern is agreed upon within a marriage. Each husband and each wife agrees what the regular pattern is of giving this due affection. There is no prescribed frequency in the scriptures. And there should not be. And we aren't going to talk about one here. Now these, these verses I've read, these three verses, especially three through five, they have been abused by many spouses. Many Christian spouses have abused these verses to try and get what they want in this area of their marriage. But note what Murray says, even in the book, in this discussion. So he wrote this 70 years ago. He says, this does not, of course, referring back to these three verses that I've read, this does not, of course, exclude the moderation, restraint, delicacy, and modesty which ought to regulate the marital relations, sex, of spouses. And I'll stress that spouses, I'm going to stress it again, and probably again and again, spouses are primarily to serve one another and not themselves in their marriage, in their marriage at large, but also in their marriage in this particular area that we're talking about here. So in this area of giving and receiving due affection, we're to serve one another, not serve ourselves. Now I know that this area, especially this area of sex in marriage, that we can get the motives of service to another and the service of self easily and in some sense understandably confused. 
I want to give you an example, two examples, actually, to illustrate. Maybe only one. I'll give you one. Maybe I'll start the next time with the second one. So I'll give the, the example from my own life. There are times when my wife loves to shop. I could just stop there. <laughs> but I'll say, loves to shop at flea markets. She loves it, like peddler's malls. You know, these places where there's... <laughs> an endless array of booths of things to look at. Now, I'm going to, you guys are all, you guys especially are all laughing with me, you think. I did not enter marriage with that as a primary or even as a quaternary, a fourth level desire or propensity. And yet, in our time together, 38 years, seeing how much she enjoys it, shopping at these flea markets and peddler's mall, I've actually come to enjoy it myself. And I say, I think. I think I've come to enjoy it myself. Because I'm trying to illustrate this point that our motives are difficult to discern. I say I think because I have trouble knowing if my enjoyment is in seeing my wife happy by this, which there is nothing wrong or unscriptural about wanting to see my wife happy, or if shopping in those kinds of places makes me happy. Am I actually serving myself by shopping at flea markets? It could be. And it's 1045. So I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to stop there. I will say, no, I'm going to stop right there. I'm not going to say any more. So let's pray, and uh, next time or the week after that, I'm not sure when, we'll get back to this, and I hope to finish it up that day. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken clearly into this area of our lives and you have given to us a definite way that we should seek to live in order to be happy living in your world. And Father, we pray that you would work in each heart here, and you would help us to establish good and profitable pathways in our thinking, and to neglect to our profit negative pathways that we have formed in the past. Father, we pray that you would give help, for it is only by your help that we can succeed in this, but we are sure of it because we are sure of your promises to us. So, Father, we pray to you and praise you with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.